It's good to see you this morning. I'm Keith. I'm one of the pastors as well here at Pillar San Antonio. Um, I'm not going to call anybody out, but to mention, to let you know just how um, small of an Air Force it is, I, we have two families uh, with us this morning who, um, when I was stationed in Guam, were part of our chapel there, um, and they both PCS'd here, and it's just really, uh, really exciting uh, to see that. Um, and so if you are, um, you know, that those welcome baskets, uh, just to let you know how, how powerful that is, especially for a military family to be welcomed. Um, uh, to give you an idea, if you don't already know, I'm still active duty. I'm the only elder on the team right now that's not a staff elder, um, so I'm an active duty chaplain. Um, and it's just always a privilege to be able to bring the Word of God, uh, and I'm really, really excited and honored to do that this morning um, as we consider the, the subject of the Lord's Supper. You've probably heard it called communion, holy communion, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the sacrament, the holy sacrament, the Eucharist. Maybe you're familiar with one or several of those terms. We know it as the taking of bread and the fruit of the vine, juice, or in some traditions, wine. And we know it as the time when we remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. But have you ever considered how strange a thing it is? I mean, honestly, as many of us have been attending church for years, its strangeness no longer strikes us. But step back for a moment and consider, if you will, what it must sound like to those who are attending church for the first time or to a young child. Imagine what it looks like. The members receive bread after the pastor repeats the words of Jesus, this is my body. And then they receive wine or grape juice after he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What in the world, a newcomer must think, is going on here? What's all this language about eating body and drinking blood about? Am I in the wrong place? Is there a way for me to sneak out now so that I don't get sucked into some sort of weird cult? The Bible must have anticipated such questions. When the Passover, for instance, was instituted, Moses said in the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 26, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. We should expect nothing different when it comes to our children and to those who are new to our fellowship. But the question is, do we know how to answer that question? What exactly do we mean by communion? What exactly do we believe about communion? Well, that's what I want us to think about this morning. And while we don't have time to do a thorough investigation or study of the extensive doctrines and the writings around the Lord's Supper, I want to give you some basics to hang your hook on this morning, to hang your hat on. To, to understand some, some foundational thoughts. And in order to frame our study, I want to use as a point of reference a word that we fall, find in Paul's treatment of this topic in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Throughout the passage, he uses a Greek word which means connect. And in so doing, he teaches that communion connects. We're going to see four different ways that communion connects this morning as we investigate Matthew's account of this supper. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Our reading is fairly short this morning. It's probably familiar to you. Matthew, chapter 26. And I want to read verses 26 through 29 
and then we'll pray together. Matthew chapter 20, or 26, beginning in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Would you pray with and for me? Father, as we come to the table this morning, we want to come with the utmost of reverence and awe for what it is this table represents. But more than just being in awe and reverence, we want to feast on the glory of the gospel this morning. We want to feast on the words of Jesus Christ. We want to be nourished. We want to be strengthened for the journey that you have called us to. And I pray this morning that as we spend time now reflecting on your word and endeavoring to come to an understanding of exactly what it is we celebrate, as much as it is humanly possible for us to do so. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open the eyes of our hearts and our minds. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified. I pray, Jesus, that your death on the cross for us would become to us so central in our thoughts and our minds that we would be moved to awesome worship. Lord, speak through me this morning, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in your sight be pleasing, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The first connection of four that we see in communion is a connection with the past. You see, my friends, communion connects us with the past. It connects the present with the past. Every year for our anniversary, as I'm sure many of you do, Erica, my wife, and I choose a special restaurant to go to. And we spend more than we would typically spend in an evening out. We get dressed up. We make a big deal of it, all in order to go out and to celebrate an event that happened in the past. We break bread together as a way of connecting the present to the past. The day of our wedding, which occurred now more than 26 years ago. I know I don't look that old, thank you. In a similar fashion, the Lord's Supper, that meal that we share together, connects the present to the past. Let me explain what I mean. I want you to think, first of all, about the occasion of this meal. Matthew began the text by saying, now as they were eating. And unless you read the entire chapter that preceded Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, you might be tempted to think this is just another dinner, but that's not the case. 
this wasn't just any evening meal, and it wasn't just Jesus' last dinner before he died on the cross. No, this was, in fact, a very special meal. It was the most special of meals for the Jewish people. Earlier in the chapter, in verses 17 to 19, we learn that this was the annual celebration of the Passover. Now, for those of you who are new to the faith, and as a reminder to those who are not new to the faith, the Passover was a celebration that commemorated the night on which the deciding act of the Jews' deliverance from Egypt occurred. Moses had delivered God's message to Pharaoh that Pharaoh let God's people go from the slavery and the bondage they were living in under the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt. It took, however, God sending a plague of the death of the firstborn of every mother and every animal in the land for Pharaoh to relent and finally to release God's people. And the night that horrific event was to occur, the Hebrews were instructed to slay a lamb and to paint their doorpost with its blood in order that the angel of death might pass over their households. In order that for the houses that were marked with the blood of this lamb, no one might die. And that's what happened. The angel did, in fact, pass through the land of Egypt that night. But every house that was marked with the blood of that Passover lamb was spared. Can you imagine being one of the Hebrew children and awakening the next morning to the guttural wailing around you in the community? As house after house after house awoke to the horrific events of that morning. But knowing that you had been spared. That's the occasion that the Passover marks. And so that they would never forget that miraculous salvation, the Hebrew children are told that from that day forward, every year they were to commemorate this event with a feast. The Passover to this day remains the oldest and the most important feast in their faith. And every year a lamb is slaughtered, remembering the blood of that first Passover lamb, which provided them salvation. That's the occasion on which Jesus chose to give us this meal. It was rather audacious, if you think about it. He got up on this meal and he changed the nature of everything went on, that went on. And if he were not God, it would have been a crazy thing to have done. When we partake of communion, we look all the way back, first of all, to the events of the Passover, as well as to the events of that Last Supper. And as we consider the celebration of the Passover by Jesus during his Last Supper, before his death, what's striking about this meal is there's no mention of a lamb. Did you ever notice that? I, I assume that they ate a lamb that evening in the meal, but it's not mentioned in the text. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ himself was the lamb. John had already said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, every time a Passover lamb was sacrificed, from the first Passover in Egypt until the night of this Last Supper, the lamb that would be slain was to point to and find its meaning in Jesus Christ. What the Exodus Passover anticipated finds its realization in the death of Jesus Christ. My friends, to this day, around the world, Jews continue to celebrate the Passover 
they do so in anticipation, get this, of something that has already been fulfilled. And do you see just how powerful a connection then this meal has to the past? Stay with me for a moment on this connection of our present to the past, because not only do we see it in the fulfillment of the Passover, but we also see it in Jesus' language regarding a covenant. Jesus speaks of a covenant in verse 28 when he refers to the cup as the, his blood of the covenant. Now, covenant is a word that has fallen out of, of popular usage in our culture today. We don't very often use the language of a covenant. But a covenant, at its most basic level, is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. You may occasionally hear it spoken of in a wedding ceremony, a marriage covenant. We find numerous examples through scripture of covenant, but the two of which we are most interested are called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was established by God with the Israelites upon their deliverance from Egypt. It was initiated by the Passover. God provided the depth and the structure to their relationship. But that covenant was not to last forever. It was meant to lead to Jesus Christ. Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, declared in chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that new covenant was initiated by Christ, who announces that his blood seals that covenant. What happens at the cross is that in the same way as God passed over his people in Egypt, saving them from death because of the blood of that sacrificed lamb, he will pass over us who have been sealed with the blood of the Lamb of God. So this meal is vital as it connects the present to the past. Now here's what I don't want you to miss. The meal that formalized and reminded the Jews of their old covenant was the Passover. It looked forward to the Messiah who had yet to come in history. But the Lord's Supper looks back to the Messiah who has already come in history. When Jesus gave his disciples the bread and the cup in that moment, he was saying, everything in history has pointed to me. Everything has directed us to this night. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament, every liberation, every priest, every deliverer, every lamb, they all pointed to me. Tonight is unlike any other night, for I am about to deliver you not just from human slavery. I'm about to deliver you from slavery to sin and death itself. And today, my friends, on the other side of the cross, we live not in an era of promise looking forward to that deliverance, but we live in an era of fulfillment. That promise has already been fulfilled. And the meal that we commemorate connects us with God's redemption of mankind at the cross once and for all. Friends, this morning communion connects the present with the past. It connects your life, your salvation, your redemption, your story on this earth with God's redemption story. It reminds us that through the blood of Christ shed on the cross, we can be saved from death to life. Communion connects. It connects the present with the past. Here's the second connection I want you to consider. Communion also connects a visible sign to a spiritual reality. Look with me if you still have your text open. Again, at verses 26 to 27, the words are familiar. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. 
and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And after he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, what communion does is it connects a physical sign, the bread and the cup, with a spiritual reality. Let me dig into that thought with you. One of the words that's used for communion, and you've probably heard it used before, is the word sacrament. Now, many Protestants are afraid of that word um, because they're afraid it sounds a little too Catholic for them. It's a little too, um, it's a little too mystical. But let me tell you, the reformers, the Protestant reformers, were not afraid of the word at all. For there's power in that ancient word. Sacrament is a Latin word, and Augustine actually defined it as a visible sign of an invisible grace. Communion, then, is a sacrament in that it is a way of visualizing the reality of the salvation that we've already learned this meal signifies. It takes something that is invisible, and it attaches to it a physical, tangible sign, bread and cup. If I tell you this morning that I have a 25-year-old daughter and I describe her to you, she's beautiful, she has long red hair, I tell her you all about her, but you've never seen her before, but then I pull out my wallet and I show you a picture of her, suddenly you're able to see that picture serves as a sign. Now, none of you would think when I showed you my daughter's picture and I said, this is my daughter, that the picture itself was actually my daughter, you would understand that this was a sign you would understand that it is a way of seeing something that you could not otherwise see. Communion, then, is a, is, a, is a sign. It's a visible sign of a spiritual reality. Communion, while the spoken word proclaims in an audible way the message of the gospel, the bread and the wine is pictured in communion. The pick, bread and the wine picture that gospel. And these physical elements, they, they appeal to our senses, right? You can touch them, you can see them, you can taste them, you can smell them, and they've got multiple layers of meaning. Just think of the bread for a moment. How many of you love bread, by the way? I've, I've been on the Atkins diet before. Anybody done the Atkins diet and tried to live without bread for a little while? It's a challenge. <laughs> Consider bread. It's useful. It is the stuff of life. So too is Christ useful. Whoever feeds on Jesus, he says in John 6, 57, will live because of him. Bread is also satisfying. Don't believe me, just try to cut it out of your diet for even a day. You'll realize how satisfying it is. So Jesus Christ, the bread of life, satisfies our souls. And bread is strengthening. The psalmist speaks of bread that strengthens a man's heart. So Jesus strengthens the soul. And when Jesus takes the bread and applies the spiritual reality of his body, he captures our imaginations in a way that words alone cannot do. The bread broken likened to his body, which would be broken just hours later. The bread pointing to Jesus' words that he is the bread of life and that whoever comes to him shall not hunger. The bread reminding the disciples and us that we are saved by the one who called us to believe in him as the living bread that came down from heaven, even as he declared in John 6, 51. Bread is a visible sign attached to an invisible spiritual reality. And what about the wine, the juice? Why not water or some other beverage? Well, from a biblical perspective, wine was an essential part of worship. 
There were drink offerings in the Old Testament consisting of wine. And worshipers would bring wine with them to accompany their sacrifices. They even kept wine in the temple. It was also used medicinally to help the weak and the sick. And wine was a thing of fellowship and of blessing. But wine, we also know, can be abused. And wine was as well a picture at times of adversity, of judgment, and of wrath. With such complexity attached to wine, we can understand Jesus' use of wine as a sign pointing to his blood, to the life that his blood would provide, life that would be poured out and become an object of God's wrath. His blood which could, would satisfy and finally put an end to the sacrificial system of old and the life given by his blood which would heal the weak and the sick and bring blessing and fellowship to those who are redeemed by it. See, in the bread and the cup which he blessed and shared with his disciples, we find visible signs connected to spiritual realities. My friends, to sum it up, the bread and the wine together represent one primary reality, the profound truth that in Christ God became a man and in his broken body and shed blood leading to death satisfied the judgment of God for the sin of all mankind. Communion connects. It connects a visible sign of bread and wine to an invisible spiritual reality. Third, it connects our hearts to God. Because when Jesus Christ says, this is my body, and he puts bread in your hand, and when he says, this is my blood, and he puts a cup in your hand, one thing is very clear. God is becoming accessible to us. It's an amazing statement. Jesus is saying, I'm making myself accessible to you. I'm connecting to you. The Lord's Supper isn't just about believing in general, but about communing, literally sharing intimacy together with him. It's about a connection with our Lord. But what's the nature of that connection? And what did Jesus mean? And what exactly happens here? How is it that our hearts are connected to God when we eat of this bread and drink of this juice? Well, let me outline a couple of primary understandings for you before I tell you what we believe about what we're going to participate in this morning. Historically, Christianity has debated what communion means. And let me just tell you that by the 12th century, a doctrine had been formalized by the Catholic Church called transubstantiation. There's your $20 seminary word of the day. You've probably heard of it before. The Catholic Church to this day maintains that when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, he meant it literally. They teach that in the Mass, as they call it, the body and blood transubstantiate. That is, they change substance and literally become the body and blood of Christ, even while retaining the properties of bread and wine. They, they would say that communion connects our hearts to God because we actually participate, we actually digest the body and the blood of Christ in the sacrament. As this teaching became mainstream, here's what happened in the church over the course of a couple of centuries. The church began to adore the bread and the wine and understandably so. Could you blame them? People would carry pieces of bread home. They would plant it in their gardens hoping for a good crop. They would carry pieces of bread home and feed it to their sick animals hoping it would make them well. Like the woman who sought to touch the garment of Jesus if you are centuries removed from the physical life of Jesus and you can somehow touch his physical body, aren't you going to want to do it? 
the sacrament became magical during those ages. Priests, in order to prevent accidentally spilling the wine, that is, they didn't want to prevent, they didn't want to spill the blood of Christ, they began only giving bread to parishioners. And by the 1500s, even the bread was widely withheld. Because if it's that sacred, if it's that holy physically, then it should be safeguarded. Well, Luther and some of the other Protestant reformers rejected this teaching, and they said, no, communion is symbolic. They pointed to the fact that when Jesus held the bread in his hand, that, that it couldn't have been his body, because he was holding it with his body. They pointed to the fact that when he said that this was his blood, that it couldn't have been his blood, because his blood had not yet been shed, not until the next day. And they argued there's a big problem with saying you only have eternal life if you eat his body and drink his blood when there are plenty of places in scripture that say if you believe in him and receive him, you will be saved with no mention of bread and cup. And so the reformers insisted that the church had it all wrong in thinking that the elements actually transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ and that only by eating those elements would you be saved. But that's the point at which the reformers parted company. How communionism is symbolic was a matter of debate and remains a matter of debate to this day. Luther, who had a very high view of scripture, by the way, held that we still needed to take the text at its word, that when Jesus said, this is my body, hoc est corpus meum in the Latin, and this is my blood, there was a literal meaning. But he argued it's not that the elements transubstantiate. He believed that Christ's body and blood are present in the elements. That they are in some way in, with, and under the elements. Luther's beliefs have come to be known as real presence. For Luther, our hearts are connected with God in communion because we receive the real presence of his body and his blood in the elements of bread and cup. Another reformer was a man named Zwingli. Zwingli was the father of the Anabaptist tradition. You know them as Amish, as Mennonites. There are some other non-denominational churches as well that have descended from that tradition. And Zwingli disagreed with both the Catholics and the Lutherans. And he insisted that the elements are only symbolic and they have no physical or spiritual dimensions to them. That there's neither physical transformation of the elements nor a union of Christ's presence with the elements. Wingley argued that they're just elements. And the meal is a memorial, nothing less, nothing more. Today, theologians often call that camp of theology memorialism. In this way of thinking, our hearts are connected to God as we remember, as we recall Christ's death. But communion, this school of thought teaches, gives us no more grace than you going home and opening your Bible and praying. At Pillar, we understand communion just a little differently. We understand it more in line with John Calvin's thinking. We reject the Catholic teaching of transubstantiation. We deny the union of Christ's presence with the elements themselves as the Lutherans teach. And yet we believe that they're more than just a memorial. Let me show you from scripture how we believe communion connects our hearts to God. Turn to John chapter 6, verse 53. John chapter 6, verse 53. Let me read to you Jesus' words there. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever 
feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, when Jesus says these things, many people are offended. If you read the rest of that passage, you realize that there were disciples that actually turned away from him at that point, verse 66 tells us. Disciples who had been following him just refused to accept this teaching. But those who are still there, they begin questioning him. And Jesus basically says, I'm not talking about the flesh. The flesh means nothing. The words I have spoken are spirit and life. He seems to be alluding to the Lord's Supper in this passage. And when people ask, are you talking literally? He says, no, I'm talking about feeding on my words. My words are spirit and life. I don't want you to just believe them intellectually. I, I want you to not only believe that I love you and died for you. I, I don't want you to just believe in the gospel. I want you to feed on these truths. I want you to drink them and as you do, I want you to remember. Don't just eat and drink. Do it in remembrance. Now, that's a crucial word. And it's one that we haven't even explored yet. Let me just mention a couple things about it. I found it really interesting this week as I studied to realize that the word remember has lost its power in the English language. When we think of the word remember, what do we think of? Recalling, right? But, but in the original text, it meant so much more than that. What's the opposite of remember? It's not to forget. It's actually to dismember. When we think of dismember, we think of hands and fingers and, and, and arms and legs. Oh, right? And so the word remember refers to a part of the body being grafted back to its body again. Being sewed being fused. It means to take something that, that is no longer a part of your being and make it a part of your being again. Church, that's part of what happens in communion. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we take the words of Jesus, the message of the gospel, and we remember it again. We take the gospel from a place of intellectual understanding and we digest it. We drink it in. And today, if you're bitter, if you're anxious, if you're angry, if you're discontent, it's either because you haven't believed the gospel or because you need to remember the gospel once again. The communion, we believe, taught in John, um, Jesus taught, offers us a way of doing so. In communion, by remembering his death and his resurrection, we feast on him. We feast on his body and his blood and our hearts are connected with him anew. Now, it's worth pointing out that you can't remember something that has never been membered. Communion is not a meal for unbelievers, for those who have yet to give their lives to Jesus Christ, whose hearts have not been opened by God for salvation. That's why we fence the table as we speak of before we partake. It's not a way of excluding anyone. Please don't hear us saying that. But it's a means of understanding that this is a family meal. It's a meal in which we commune, in which we share intimacy with each other and with Christ. This isn't a neutral meal. There's a lot at stake here. Just as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, that hearing with unbelief brings judgment, so too does he teach in 1 Corinthians that eating and drinking in unbelief is of grave concern. 
If you're with us this morning and you've never been grafted into the body of Christ, you've never membered into the body of Christ, you've never, um, the gospel has never been applied to your life, if you've never been united with Christ and confessed Jesus as your Savior, we want more than anything today for that to happen. But until this time, this isn't a meal for you. You can't remember Christ died and resurrected until you have been united and membered to his body. That's why Paul makes it abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians that this meal is for Christ's church. It's a family meal for believers for whom the blood of Christ has been applied to the doorpost of your life and the Lamb of God has passed, has give, applied his blood so that you might be passed over from death to life. Communion connects. It connects the present with the past. It connects a visible sign with an invisible spiritual reality. And it connects our hearts with God. And there's one final connection I want to draw out this morning. Communion connects our stories to the future. Come back to Matthew's account one more time in chapter 26. Listen again to what Jesus said in verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When he comes, Revelation 19, verse 6 and following tells us the lamb is going to bring about a great supper, a great feast. Here's what verse 9 of that passage says. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we get to the new heavens and the new earth, there will be a feast, a supper, a celebration that the pain, the suffering, the agony, the death that we experience here on this earth will be no more. That the deepest longings of our hearts will be forever filled. That as Revelation 21.2 tells us, God will dwell with us, we will be his people, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That feast of the Lamb will celebrate that occasion. And so when Jesus speaks of the day that he will share that cup with us again, that's the meal that he's referencing. And when we partake now, we do so in anticipation of that great feast of the Lamb. Communion then connects our story to the future, to the supper. So what's this supper? I love the way preacher Tim, Tim Keller puts it. He says it's the hors d'oeuvres of our future bliss. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's as if Jesus is whispering to us, I am unconditionally committed to getting you from here to there. Lift your eyes, my son. I will hold you fast, my daughter. I will sustain you. I will be faithful to you. When you walk through trials and adversity, I am with you. When you are unfaithful, I will remain faithful. When you sin, I will be there to forgive you. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you, my beloved. I will hold you fast until one day I feast with you. Communion connects. It connects the present to the past. It connects a visible sign with an invisible spiritual reality. It connects our hearts to God. And it connects our story to the future. In just a few moments, we're going to turn to this meal. And we're going to remember the gospel by eating it and drinking it together. We're going to be connected again to the past. 
We're going to embrace the sign of the bread and the cup as a connection to the invisible spiritual reality of the grace and forgiveness and life we receive through his death and resurrection. We're going to seek to remember the gospel, to have our hearts connected to God by feasting on Christ. And we're going to look forward to the feast of the Lamb in which we will one day partake. But before we do, let me give you two closing thoughts. The first is on the frequency with which we celebrate this meal. Jared, Andrew, and myself have been praying and discussing this since the very early days of praying together about this church plan. And the truth is, Scripture is not clear about how often we should partake. It doesn't tell us. Jesus doesn't give us any guidance. Paul doesn't give us any guidance. That said, it seems evident in the book of Acts that the early church was committed to the Lord's Supper as a regular part of worship that it was as regular as preaching and prayer. It was bad theology coupled with abusive practices that caused the Lord's Supper to fall out of regular observance. But we believe that there are better ways to revere the Lord's Supper than by omitting it from regular worship. And what's more, we're convinced that it should be a part of our regular worship. That in the same way as we need regular physical meals for nourishment, so too do we need this supper regularly. Let me quickly share 10 questions that Thomas Doolittle, a Puritan pastor from, in London from the 17th century, raised in his treatise concerning regular celebration of the Lord's Supper. This is what he wrote. Do you not often stand in need of being washed in the blood of Christ? Do you not often blot your evidences and disturb your peace? Do you not often need the means of spiritual warmth and quickening? Do you not often need so great a help to break and soften your heart, renew your repentance for sin, and strengthen and confirm your resolutions against it? Do you not often need so great a help to increase your love for God and Christ? Do you not often need so great a help to strengthen your faith and hope and to have a more lively hope of the kingdom of heaven? Do you not often need so great a help to put you in remembrance of your Lord Jesus? Do you not often need so great a help to make you more thankful for the matchless love wherewith he has loved you? Do you not often need so great a help to get and maintain more intimate communion with God and fellowship with Jesus Christ? And finally, do you not more often need so great a help to knit your heart more closely unto the people of God in greater affection and love for them. As we've prayed and we've considered our position, we've come to the consensus that our answer to these questions is a resounding yes. We often need all of them. And so we've decided to begin participating weekly in the Lord's Supper. We're not going to do, we're going to participate this morning. There's going to be two more weeks when we don't yet, and then beginning on the 27th, this will become a regular part of our worship. That's the reason for this morning's emphasis. And it's also the reason I want to close by urging you to consider exactly how you approach this table. Thomas Watson, another Puritan preacher from the 17th century, outlined seven ways we should approach the table. And I want to urge you to consider them this morning and every week as we come. In fact, I think they're going to be on the screen. Do you have them on the screen there? Um, If you have your phones and you want to take a screenshot of that or a picture of that, I'd encourage you to do that. 
because these are things that I want you to be considering not just this morning, but every time we come. First, he said, come with self-examining hearts. Those are words right out of Paul's letter. The Greek word for examine is a metaphor taken from the goldsmith who tries his metals. So before we come to the Lord's table, we are to make examination of ourselves to allow the Holy Spirit to shine a light on any sin that we have not yet confessed of. Second, come with serious hearts. Now that doesn't mean that you can't come joyful. The word Eucharist actually means to give thanks, but it means that we should approach the table with the greatest of reverence. We should never do this flippantly. Number three, come with intelligent hearts, he said. While we can't completely understand the mystery of the sacrament, we ought to have a measure of knowledge. We ought to seek to think about and pray and understand what it is we participate in. If you want more resources, more information on this, come see myself, come see Pastor Ander. We would be glad to share that with you. But come with intelligent hearts, truly considering what it is we do here. Number four, come with longing hearts. If God prepares the feast, we should have an appetite. The magnificence of this supper and the promise of the heavenly banquet should stir within us desire. Five, come with penitent hearts. We should taste the bitterness of our sin every time we come to this table. It should pierce us through. It should make us desire his holiness all the more. Six, come with sincere hearts. What's your aim in coming? If it's that God will give you more victory over sin and that he will sanctify you with his truth, if it's that he'll make you more like his son, if it's that he'll heal you with the balm of the gospel, then God will be good to you. Come with sincerity of heart. And finally, come with hearts fired with love to Christ. Give your love to Christ, but weep that you don't love him more. I'm going to ask David to come back to the platform and and prepare us musically for our preparation to receive the Lord's Supper. And I want to ask him to play softly, and I just want to ask us to spend a few moments in prayer, silent prayer. Consider these questions as you do, and then in just a moment I will invite you to come and and to take the elements. Actually, let's do that now. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this is a family meal, and, and we don't want to, it's not to exclude anyone that we say this, but it's understanding that if you are going to remember something, if you are going to have the gospel applied once again to your life, then it needs to have been applied in the first place. And so if, if you this morning would say, no, I'm not in fellowship with Jesus Christ, we invite you to, to, to observe, to spend time in prayer and reflection, to allow the Holy Spirit to seek your heart, to search your heart, to spend this time surrendering. We would love to talk to you afterwards about how you could become a part of the family. This is a family meal. And so if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come, take the elements back to your seats, hold them, we will receive them together, and as you hold them, please spend some time in silent prayer considering these seven considerations. As you hold these simple elements in your hand, these signs, the spiritual reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came, that he became a one of us in human form, that he took on the nature of a slave for us, that he submitted himself to death, even death by 
cross. In so doing, became the great fulfillment of the Passover lamb. That his blood, that his broken body, are for us life. I pray this morning that as we partake together, that we would do so remembering the gospel. It would be applied to your soul and your heart anew today. That as we remember the body that is broken for us and the blood that is shed for us, that we would do so with thanksgiving and with a desire to know him more deeply and to love him more passionately. Let's partake in thanksgiving together. Would you pray with me? God, even as the Jews for thousands of years have celebrated the Passover, remembering the salvation that you gave to them and remembering the meal that commemorated the initiation of a covenant relationship with you. We thank you for this meal that initiated a new covenant, that fulfilled the old covenant, and that brought us into relationship with you, that allowed us to, to be adopted as your sons. And this meal that continues to this day to be a sign and a seal of things that have been fulfilled and yet are to come. Thank you for allowing us to feast on the body and blood of Christ today, on his words, on the truth of the gospel. Apply it afresh to our lives this week, we pray. In Jesus' name.